Martin has a degree in library science. Later in his career, he worked in banking compliance. Bill was a curator for private book collections. Let's hear all about Bill's career recollections. So on today's podcast, I am thrilled to be joined by Bill Martin. He is the Director of Privacy and Compliance at the New York Public Library. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Bill. Thank you, Noah. Glad to be here. Excellent. So uh, we'll start from the beginning. You grew up in Illinois. Uh, talk about your childhood and, uh, and, and what you wanted to be growing up. Okay. Well, I wanted to be a little of everything. I mean, I think from week to week, uh, my career aspirations covered the gamut. Uh, but, um, it, you know, it, it's interesting growing up in the Midwest, people, even though I've lived in New York for almost 40 years, people still say, you're from a different part of the country, right? And so, you know, it's, um, uh, I grew up in actually Northern Illinois, but my father was from an, a town called Quincy, right on the Mississippi River. What's interesting about that, it's right in the same area as Hannibal, Missouri, where Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens grew up. And so my family had this very deep uh, history and alliance with Illinois dating back to the early 1800s, actually. So I wow. consider myself a, a Midwesterner through and through, uh, and, and I'm proud of that. But uh, yeah, growing up, I, I went to a parochial schools and, and um, you know, was, was exposed to all kinds of good, a good education. And, and um, at one point I thought I might be a scientist. And you know, I guess every kid maybe at some point thinks that. But one thing I did notice uh, was that I had a passion for organizing things. So I don't know how many other people can say this is as a child, I um, cataloged <laughs> our family book collection at all, actually put Dewey decimal numbers on them. So that should have been an indication of where where things were headed, but it was a, a while before I got to the the library part of my career. Interesting. Um, where did that uh, inspiration come from so early on? I don't know. I I think it was just a a an idea to um to, to have organization and sort of that that kind of uh, logical representation of life. I remember also in high school I did a. Uh, also something that not many people did. I, I got interested in, in scientific classifications, the, the Linnaean system, right? That gives every um, animal and plant a genus and species. And uh, I thought, wow, that's, you know, that, that's great that somebody actually invented this system. So systematic approach to knowledge, I guess was, you know, an early passion calling, if you want to call it that. Um, that, that probably led me down the road to, to other things that were similar to that. So, yeah, so that's, you know, first whatever years of my life. Uh, and then ended up going to college in Illinois, Eastern Illinois University. And that particular school was because I was interested in botany, right? <laughs> so had the classification system. I thought, well, I, this is plant science. I, I, I thought might be, maybe I would be good at that. I quickly realized that I, I did not have the, the chops for for science. I had a roommate in college who uh, went on to a career in, as as a, a, a physiology professor, and um, he definitely had had that ability to to do that. I realized 
this isn't for me. So I became an English major, right? It's a fallback <laughs> for, for anybody who's not sure what they want to do in life. I think an English uh, degree is, is wonderful training for so many careers. I mean, that's what they told me at the time, but it actually turns out to be, to be the case. So I got my BA, BA in English from uh, Eastern Illinois University. And it was, um, it did turn out to be a valuable tool. I, um, I became interested in medieval literature and history and thought, well, maybe I'll pursue a degree, an advanced degree so I can teach in college. And with that in mind, I uh, actually took off a year between college and, and grad school and just worked um, an odd job. Actually, I was a shipping clerk. So you know, right right in the, in the midst of this, talk about a, career, a job that had nothing to do with anything else I've ever done. Um, uh, I did that for about a year. And then I got admitted to a pretty prestigious program at the University of Toronto. It's called the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies. Pontifical because it actually is sanctioned by the, the Vatican. And I um, uh, studied there for about a year. And while I was there, I was actually I was admitted to a, a junior fellowship at a, um, a residential college within the university called Massey College, which was headed in those days by Robertson Davies, who's anybody who's Canadian would know immediately know who he is, one of the great Canadian writers. And he was the, in those days, they called the master of the college. They since changed that terminology, but um, it was it was a fascinating place. If you think of the Harry Potter movies and the dining halls and the, the robes and everything, that's what we were. We were based on an Oxford college. We wore robes to dinner. There was a prayer at the beginning of the dinner in Latin. Uh, we had high table. Uh, it was it, it was kind of you know a, an experience apart from 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 the norm of, of a graduate school experience. But um, so I did that for a year, and I, I quickly realized. That, sorry, go ahead. Was that uh, your first time there out of uh, out of the United States or out, out of Illinois? Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think living in Canada exposed me to some different ways of thinking. So I know a lot of people on your podcast are lawyers or uh, interested in law. And I remember sitting at um, in dinner one evening and, and some of the Canadians said, you, you Americans in your litigation. And they said, that, that would never happen up here. And we, we don't allow people to just, you know, sue for, for anything. It's obviously based on a British system and it's, it's a lot different. And um, that was kind of my first exposure to, hmm, you know, there, there are things that are done differently here. They also have a very robust uh, system of political parties, um, four or five major parties, unlike the US, again, because of a parliamentary system. So, um, you know, there, there are a number of travel writers have said, you know, in order to really understand yourself and, and who you are and your culture, you have to explore other cultures. So that was my first time doing that. And, was valuable for that, if nothing else. I, um, but as far as the degree program, I just I saw fellow students who were spending six, seven years pursuing a PhD and thinking, wow, you know, I, I don't know if I want to continue with this journey, um, especially given how competitive it was to to get a, a professorship, say, in a, in a college or university. So um, <laughs> I should stop at this point and mention that. A few years, it's about 20 years ago on Broadway, there was an off-Broadway play called Blown Sideways Through Life. And a woman named Claudia Shear wrote this one-person play. 
about her own experiences of having been in 64 different jobs over a period of like two or three years. And I often think that's kind of my life. You know, I've, I've had so many different experiences and I value all of them. But, you know, when people hear this, they're probably going to go, wow, he's just bouncing around from place to place. And I'll fully admit to that, that, that you know, it, it did kind of sometimes seem that way or happen that way. But I'm, I'm grateful for all the experiences I had. So here's where things take a, a kind of interesting twist. So I leave the University of Toronto, this very prestigious uh, graduate program. And I, I, I thought, well, got the English degree and I'm kind of interested in journalism. And I had written a few articles for the, the University of Toronto newspaper. So I searched and searched and um, through a trade magazine, I, I answered an ad for a job in Arizona. Never been to Arizona. Didn't know, you know, much about what the job was other than I was going to be a general reporter. So I get in the car, go down to this town I'd never seen. <laughs> and I end up in southeastern Arizona, a town called Douglas. And I was the only reporter on the newspaper. I did it all. I covered the city council, the school board, the, you know, the, the, all the local events. If there was a car crash, whatever. I was, I was the, the person who had to... Um, you know, write up the stories. And this was back in the day when we had actual typewriters, nothing was electronic, in a press room with an offset press. I mean, it was really, we had an AP machine right next to my desk with the teletype. Um, but it gave me great experience writing and also interviewing people. Uh, and just understanding, you know, a great deal about, about the, the world and, and um, how, how it works. I should mention before I, I did this trip, or did, did that job, I went on a trip to Europe. I decided to take off three months. This is between Toronto and, and the newspaper job. And just uh, traveled through Europe for three months. I backpacked. And uh, again, you know, that experience was, um, let's say, life-changing. It, it, it really gave me exposure to many ideas and ways of thinking. So back to the interesting. Newspaper. What was uh, life changing about it? About the trip to Europe? Yeah. Um, I guess just seeing how people lived, um, you know, having read about it, obviously, and seeing movies and whatever. It's not the same as, as actually traveling with them on a train or talking to them in their home or, or those other things. Um, I remember staying with somebody in, in Brussels, Belgium, and uh, it was a leaving the person's apartment and, and and the person looked at me and said, aren't you, you're not going to turn off the light? And and I said, well, I don't know. I'm coming back, coming back in an hour or whatever. No, no, no. You don't understand. We, we conserve energy. We, we don't, we, we're not like you Americans. We can't just, you know, waste it. And uh, this was quite a number of years ago before, um, you know, general consciousness about that. But it was, it was a, those little conversations that, that just led me to understand that, you know, there's, um, there's a different mindset that, that exists out in the world. Yeah. Um, but the, the Arizona job was also interesting because it was in a part of the country that was very remote. So southeastern Arizona is uh, it's called Cochise County. And it's where uh, the Apache leaders, Cochise and Geronimo, um, hid out for... Uh, long periods of time before they were captured by the U.S. Cavalry. 
So that's how remote it is, is that they they were able to hide out in the mountains and occasionally I'd go hiking in those mountains. It was, yeah, it, it, it really is uh, you know, far from from civilization. So, um, but I, I, that, so that's one experience I had that, um, and I worked at that paper for about three years, moved on, decided you know, to stay with journalism. I was in El Paso, Texas, uh, was my next job covering City Hall. Um, and then that didn't last long before I got an offer from the Associated Press. And that was in Little Rock, Arkansas. Moved there. And it just happened that there was this fellow who had been just reelected governor named Bill Clinton. And it was an interesting time to be on the desk at the AP when Clinton was governor. So I got a chance to interview him a few times. And, uh, oh. um, uh, but the AP's a, in, in a, in, at least in the in the journalism world, it, it operates on a slightly different thing than what most people think. You're not you're usually not out in the field interviewing folks. A lot of it is rewriting stories. A lot of it's on the phone kind of work. And um, I decided that just uh, wasn't for me. So again, another pivot. Um, this time, I ended up at the University of Arkansas Library at the University of Arkansas Little Rock. Um, partly because I had at one point interviewed somebody there and I thought, well, you know, they had a job opening and maybe I'll always had an interest in the cataloging stuff. So for, I want to say three, four years, I did that, decided, well, maybe I should get a graduate degree in, in library science, you know, go on with this. So I applied to various schools and ended up at Columbia University in New York. Uh, they offered me a scholarship, I came east and uh, one-year program at Columbia. And shortly after that, I got my first job um, in that area of the business. I specialized in rare books and I worked for a rare book dealer, um, a specialist in manuscripts named Ken Rendell. And he had a gallery on 57th Street and I managed that gallery. We sold framed autographs and, and um, signed documents and some of them quite spectacular, uh, Albert, Albert Einstein, um, a number of uh, historical figures, all the presidents. Uh, and uh, so people came into this gallery and they bought these these documents. And my job was to explain, you know, the historical value and, and, and so on. Um, so I did that for, um, I want to say, another two or three years. Uh, and that led to another job in the rare books field, which was working for a person named Frederick Koch, K-O-C-H, of the Koch family. He was one of the four brothers who was not party to the, the continuing fortune. He got a, a payout, but it still made him one of the wealthiest people in the world. And at the time he was building an art collection, including books and manuscripts. And my job was to register and, and uh, catalog and oversee that book collection, which was pretty fascinating. He had some extraordinary book, books with uh, great book bindings and uh, original manuscripts. Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, for instance, was in his collection. And um, at the time he was starting to think about what he wanted to do with it. Uh, and um, he decided that he wanted to give it to a, a library. And he ended up giving it to Yale University, the Beinecke Library at Yale was the eventual recipient of it. And my, part of my work was to go up to New Haven and, and uh, install that collection in Beinecke. And that's where it sits today. Uh, other parts of it were sold off at Sotheby's, and I was responsible for those 
major sales at Sotheby's uh, parts of his collection. So, um, but there's more. <laughs> so that, that um, at that point, I decided I needed to, I'm starting a family, got, got married, got a child, and library work is not uh, generally too, uh, uh, it's not a high paying pr profession. I mean, the average starting salary at NYPL is, you know, $55,000, just to give you an idea. So I looked around and came up with the idea that I might want to work in some area of computer science. Well, why there? Because when I worked for Coke, I kind of became the de facto guy for installing a new printer or whatever. We were doing some database uh, management. And I, so I kind of, you know, learned on the job. And um, the other thing I did in my spare time working for Coke was I was interested in books. And I, I thought to myself, you know, there's really no good um, single book that describes all the bookstores in New York City. So I came up with the idea, I'm going to publish my own guide to New York City bookstores. So I called it Martin's Guide to Manhattan Booksellers. And um, I published it myself. Uh, I got a printer out in Michigan to print the thing. And then some people said, you're never going to get this into bookstores. What bookstore would carry a book <laughs> that described other bookstores? But it became a success. Barnes and & Noble and, and some of the major retailers picked it up, put it on display. We had an opening party at uh, Rizzoli's. And it was, it sold about, I think I printed off about 5,000 copies, uh, which was, you know, for a self-published guide, pretty good. And then I wanted to do a second edition. And um, you have to keep in mind that I had all 5,000 copies in our apartment. So my wife said, we're not going to store 5,000 copies of another edition. So I found a publisher uh, that's no longer in business called City and Company. They publish books specifically about New York City. And I thought, well, okay, let's maybe, you know, they'll, they'll be interested in this. And they said, yeah, let's, let's do it. In the meantime, I had taken a copy of that first book and distributed it to a number of famous authors asking if they'd be interested in writing a preface or a forward to that, to this upcoming second edition. And I got polite letters back from people like Calvin Trillin and Brendan Gill and Tom Wolfe wrote me a, a very nice note. And I still have framed because he has a spectacular handwriting. But then I, in the mail one day, this letter shows up from Connecticut and um, didn't recognize the address, no name. I open it up and it's a two page typed essay, a little post-it note on it said, saying, Mr. Martin, not sure if you can use this, but um, please feel free to. Signed, Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, the playwright. <laughs> the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who wrote out of the salesman. So uh, I said, I wrote back, yes, I'd be interested and um, I would love for you to, you know, to, to, to publish this. So um, next thing I knew, I was dealing with international creative management, uh, his, his agent there. And we, we signed a, a, you know, an honorarium that I, I paid him for that. So the second edition was published with the Miller preface. Uh, and uh, it's not in print anymore, but you can still find it online, both, both editions. So I consider that one of my great successes was, was getting those, that book published. And a lot of the books, the bookstore is listed in there, unfortunately, of course, they're no longer around. But um, 
but people, uh, I think the, the highest compliment I got was somebody said they went into a Barnes and Noble one day and they said, I'm looking for a bookstore that specializes in Russian books, whatever. That person behind the counter said, well, uh, I've got this book here that I think we can find one for you. And, and the uh, bookstore clerk said, and you can't have this. This is my only copy and it was well found and marked up and everything. So I thought, darn, you know, people are actually using that thing. So um, it's one of the prouder accomplishments of my life is having that. Uh, having done that, uh, so um, so we're at the end of the period with Coke. That was six years, uh, and because I had done the computer stuff, and because I had that book, I went to a, uh, an employment fair, and there's this guy in a booth, and he said, uh, "Oh, really? You do this on your own?" Uh, he said, "I think we've got a, a position for you at our company," and it was a small software firm down on uh, in Lower Manhattan, and. Uh, Got the job there, worked there for about a year. And then the person I was reporting to went on to work at Citigroup. Um, and this is like 1998. He said, do you want to come join me at Citigroup? Um, I said, okay, you know, it sounds, sounds promising. And I ended up doing, uh, working in an early part of um, compliance for a product called CityDirect, which was an online banking platform, commercial banking platform. Uh, then the very early days then of, uh, of the internet. Yes, yes. So we're talking 1998. Yeah. So, wow. uh, yeah, um, so this is for like letters of credit and, and trans payment transfers. It was at a time when, you know, if you were on a, uh, on a cruise line and you needed to pay your employees, how would you transfer the money um, remotely? And, you know, this is, again, as you say, it's beginning of the internet. So, you know, how would you do that? This is what uh, that platform kind of figured out. Um, and so I stayed at Citigroup for, I, I want to say, 15 years. I worked eventually through uh, this compliance function uh, and ended up at one point working for the chairman uh, of the chairman's department at CBNA, Citibank um, National Association. So the uh, commercial part of it and um, doing compliance work directly with the um, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, FDIC, and the Federal Reserve Board, just making sure that the bank was doing what it was supposed to be doing. And, um, but it was pretty exciting work. We you know, worked uh, with directly with those government entities and basically had to make sure that the bank was was you know on on track and on target. And in the midst of that was 2008, the fiscal crisis. So we were. You know, keeping our fingers crossed that thing that the bank would keep keep going at that point. Um, it, was a, it was a little dicey, but um, I think through our efforts, we you know reassured everyone that, that we were on a steady course. And uh, so it did that, and then eventually started working on policy uh, management for for Citigroup. Uh, not the most exciting stuff. I mean, I, I guess I never imagined if you go back to the childhood days, oh, I want to be a banker someday. <laughs> I want to work in that in the financial sector. But uh, it was a great learning experience. Enjoyed the people I worked with um, and moved over to J.P. Morgan Chase, did some similar work for, for them for time, again, within the kind of technology sector, technology compliance. And... Um, and then briefly with UBS, uh, Swiss Swiss banking um, company. Uh, Interesting. So you know your transition there to 
working in in uh, big banks prior to that you've you know had mainly spent time at universities at libraries was that a, a big transition it was yeah i mean a much different culture um and banks you know need i point out they're about making a profit of money uh nonprofits are not so much focused on that and uh, so the the uh, the gist and the importance of of, of doing that was, was um you know it, it, it was a pivot uh, it was a, a different mindset in, in terms of those things and, and so you're also dealing with the city group was a company of 300,000 employees mind-blowing i mean to think you're in 100 plus countries and you're dealing with trillions of dollars in assets moving around so you know it does kind of make you uh, it, 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 it makes you realize the seriousness of, of, of what you're doing um, not that what you're doing in the library or nonprofit world isn't important, but it doesn't have the same consequences. I think it's fair to say. Um, and then, so now we finally get in back into the library world. So this was an interesting thing. I love New York Public Library. I'd been a cardholder for many years. And one day I was logging into my account at NYPL and I see this um, advertisement on the homepage saying, we're hiring. And I thought, um, yeah, that's great. You know, knowing what libraries generally pay, I thought, oh, okay, well, no, let me poke him around here and see what see what they're they, they're offering. And lo and behold, they said, we're looking for a CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, and a privacy, a director of privacy. Oh. And I uh, thought, okay, well, uh, and I started looking over the qualifications. They wanted somebody with a library degree. I had that right from Columbia. They wanted somebody with a JD uh, from a law school, did not have that, but they wanted somebody with compliance experience and, and first and foremost, certainly have that. Uh, so I applied for it and I'll, I get this call back saying, we wanna bring you in for an interview. And um, through a series of interviews, I found out I was the only candidate. <laughs> and, and when I was eventually hired, they said, well, you were a unicorn. We never expected to find anybody with both the JD and the library degree. You have one of the two, and then but you also had the compliance experience. So you're you were our our candidate from from the start. And I actually had to go through quite a number of interviews before I got the job. I eventually interviewed with Tony Marks, the uh, then president, still president of NYPL. And what was interesting about the interviews were was that they had never had a privacy officer. They uh, had had posted this position partly because of a board of trustees decision that um, they needed one. You know, it's just kind of changing times. This is 2015. And, but people in, you know, in senior management were kind of going, well, what do we do with one of these privacy officers? What are they good for? <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I kind of had to create the position out of nothing because then as now, NYPL is the only library in the country that has a full-time privacy officer. So I had to figure out what, what this position was about exactly. So I started doing research, looking at talking to other people in other institutions. And um, I eventually got the hang of, you know, what it means to, to be in a position like that and be responsible for all the personally, like personal data that the organization holds. And so for NYPL, I would say to people, we're not a born digital institution by by a long shot. 
we've been around for 125 years. And that whole 125 year history uh, constitutes what we have in terms of the kind of information we hold. So we still use paper carbon copy call slips, you know, for certain parts of the organization. We still have uh, activities that involve, you know, anything from digital to something written on a, in an index card. Uh, and all of that can contain PII, right? Personally identifiable information. So I found that, you know, my job was first of all, figuring out where all this stuff lives and then also educating people. So you asked about the difference between nonprofits and say the banking world. Banking world, they get it. They understand, you know, security and safety and confidentiality and all of those things. Data classification. Term data classification didn't mean anything to, to my colleagues at the library. Not not because they ignored it, but they didn't just it wasn't part of the culture. So I had to introduce these ideas, you know, one by one and uh, the idea of data retention and, and disposal. Again, libraries you know, by, by their nature are not uh, institutions that think of data disposal. It's not, you know, it's kind of against the grain of what they do, but, you know, it, it, so it's taken, I would say the whole time I've been there, almost seven years to kind of turn this massive boat <laughs> in a slightly different direction um, and get people to understand that these, these concepts. So what I've done that, that I think has been the most effective is just talking to groups, saying here are basic privacy principles, you know, data limit, limit, limitation, and um, uh, access control and things like that. And I work closely with the IT folks um, and in terms of you know, data security and so on. And I think we've we've managed some some great successes in the, in the library. And um, uh, Later this week, I'm going to be speaking to a group of folks from the Association of Research Libraries about the pending bill in Congress for um, uh, the, the American Data Privacy Protection Act and helping them understand what that means for libraries. So um, I feel like, you know, I've also kind of uh, been a spokesperson for privacy in libraries. I also headed up a committee within the American Library Association um, that deals in, in this topic. So um, and, and I, I will mention that one of the challenges for me in this role and for libraries across the country is that we deal with vendors all the time. Libraries can't afford to build their own data management system or catalog system, whatever. We rely on off-the-shelf products. And sometimes those off-the-shelf products don't do what we would like them to do or they don't have the protections we'd like to have built in. So an example, I talked to a vendor earlier this week and they they had a login uh, portal that uh, required you to have a Google account. Log in with your Google account or you can use Facebook or you can use, and I said, no, 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 you don't understand. We, we, we don't want our patrons to have to, you know, sign up for another service in order to use a service that we're offering to them. Um, so there've been some interesting discussions and frankly battles along the way. Um, so that's where, where we are in 2022. We're uh, still, still learning, but uh, making great strides. I think uh, not just at NYPL, but I think libraries across the country are embracing um, some of the, uh, well, many of the concepts that, that you know, we've talked about um, in the privacy world. Uh, and I've worked closely with the 
International Association of Privacy Professionals, um, and uh, they've been supportive. It's um, it's it's a learning process, and I think what we're seeing in the country is that that it's still evolving. Interesting. You know, can you speak a little bit to privacy and libraries? Has been around even before the internet. Talk sure. about some of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's. I think uh, it's to librarians' credit that they, the institution and libraries, librarians individually have have been very protective of people's um, personal information. And you know, I was in my standard roadshow. I always say, well, there's a difference between privacy and confidentiality. What we call privacy is what most people are really actually thinking of when they think when we talk about confidentiality. Um, which is the uh, obligation of an institution or whomever you give the information to to protect that information. So um, going back to the 1930s, American Library Association has made statements that you know they stand by people's right to use libraries without any interference uh, or surveillance. Uh, and in the early 1970s, there was quite a... a interesting case, landmark case called the Harrisburg Seven. And it involved um, some uh, defendants who were accused of uh, fomenting a plot, if you can believe it, to kidnap Henry Kissinger and blow up some tunnels in Washington, D.C. until Nixon stopped the war. I mean, it's a pretty high-profile case. Jadker Hoover was, was apparently directly involved with it. But at the center of the controversy, was this librarian at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania who allegedly had seen one of the defendants or somebody connected with one of the defendants using a library. And she was asked to testify as to what she saw the defendant do in the library. She refused. And she, the uh, judge in the case uh, ordered her um, jailed on contempt. And it's first known case of a librarian going to jail to protect somebody's um, right to privacy. Joya Horn is the name of the li librarian. Um, and it, um, it really became cemented, I would say, in the early 80s, because, again, for folks who weren't living then or may have forgotten about this, the, the 1980s were the early 80s, the height of the Cold War. And the FBI started coming into libraries and saying, we'd like to you know, know who's been using certain books that we can, they were trying to ferret out spies, right? And uh, libraries said, no, we can't cooperate with you. And, and in response, uh, states started passing library privacy laws, which are kind of interesting. I mean, I would venture to say most people aren't aware of this, but um, New York passed one in 1982 and it specifically protects um, the information that libraries collect and says it can only be used for library purposes outside of, say, a warrant or a subpoena and that sort of thing. And um, now those laws exist in all 50 states, some a little stronger than others, but it does give libraries a special protection that, that is almost unique to a, to a given institution. And I might mention in this pending uh, federal privacy law, the ADPPA, they preserve the state library laws that they are not preempted uh, because they are such a unique animal. Um, and, and libraries 
still today are you know fighting the battle. Um, there was something that was fairly public about LinkedIn wanted to uh, they have a product called Lynda.com, which is online training videos, and a lot of libraries provide access to these online training videos for Lynda. Uh, they pay for that, and about two, three years ago, LinkedIn said, um, well, we would rather that people create a LinkedIn account in order to access the, the Linda videos. Big uproar, big pushback. President of the American Library Association said that, no, 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 you can't require us to you know, make our patrons you know, sign up for your service in order to use this other service, even though it's a subset. And lo and behold, LinkedIn, um, changed their policy. I want to say they backed down, but they changed their policy so that that was not required of libraries. But that's an example of a recent, um, a, a recent battle that that I would say librarians won, and uh, on that front, it, it's it's a challenge though, though, because you know people see the services the convenience of using various digital products and they say, how come I can't get this with the library? How come I can't keep my reading history? So this is another example of where libraries have held the line for since the beginning is that reading history is considered sacred. We do not divulge that. In fact, we go so far as to delete what a person has read from our cataloging system. So you borrow a copy of, uh, you know, The Great Gatsby, You've got to check that for two weeks. We've got that record. The minute you return that copy to the library, uh, the fact that Noah Katz had borrowed that book is gone. I mean, this would be anathema to most for-profit companies you know, that, that they wouldn't keep that interesting tidbit of, of your behavior and use it for certain purposes, but that's the way libraries operate. And so it's kind of counterintuitive to the general behavior of, of certainly for-profit organizations and even other nonprofits. Uh, as we all know, data is gold. It's it's worth money. And but you know for us, we we take a I don't know what to call it higher ground, but we take a different stance on that. People's interesting. Privacy. So there is some data minimization uh, in the library Absolutely. sphere. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean <clears throat> yeah I want to touch on uh, one interesting thing you've started law school recently in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, talk about that, you know, for, for folks that are listening that are maybe already pretty deep into their career and now working in privacy, thinking about going to law school, why did you decide to go and and uh, talk about that that experience so far? Sure. So I think I mentioned when I applied for the job at NYPL, one of the one of the desired qualifications on the rec was having a JD. And so I'm in the league, I was in the legal department, or that's where I that position. I'm reporting to the general counsel, but I was the only non-lawyer uh, in the department. And I constantly found myself saying, well, um, just a disclaimer, I'm not an attorney, and you know, therefore my opinion is based on you know, the layperson's view of things. So that that was kind of part of it. Um, and then um, just circumstances changed so that I had uh, um, possibility of, of having some um, time and money to, to be able to do law school. And I thought, why not do it? So I applied to 
number of places and ended up going to City University of New York uh, Law School right in Long Island City. And I went part-time evenings and weekends, summers. Took four years and I was still working full-time at NYPL, but I completed the, uh, the JD just this past May. And uh, I have to say way, way back in the when I was much younger, I had seen a movie called Paper Chase. And that movie always stayed with me as just kind of an inspiration. I loved that movie. And, and I just thought that the, um, I guess it goes back to the idea of intellectual rigor and what it, what it represented um, stayed with me. And I, um, and I liked the notion of, of, of the law and how it does, it does require that kind of um, decision-making and, and, you know, if you think back to the cataloging and all of that, that I did as a kid, I mean, I kind of, it's part and parcel of it. I remember watching it. Uh, there's a bar prep company called Barbary. And one of the lecturers was saying, well, when you, you know, there's multiple choice exams on the bar exam, he says, well, if you look at this one choice, it's kind of right, but it's also kind of not right. And he's, and then he looks into the camera, he says, but there's only one correct choice. <laughs> With the uh, with the MBA, the multi-state bar exam, and I think that's that's representative of why one of the reasons why I like the law is because it does provide those kinds of you know it's not a hard and fast decision. Of course, we've seen with a number of Supreme Court decisions in the past few months that the law is always evolving, changing, uh, and um, but but I, I I treasure that that kind of uh, again intellectual rigor at the thinking. Um, so, uh, even though it wasn't required for the job, I wanted to have the degree just to kind of complete, um, that, that lifelong dream, I would say. Interesting. Um, so looking to the future, uh, what do you, what do you see yourself doing now armed with, uh, a new law degree, uh, what, what kinds of things are, are, are you looking for, uh, in, in, in your future careers? Um, well, at the moment, I'm very happy at, at New York Public Library. <clears throat> Plan to stay there um, and um, continue doing the, the work I'm doing. Um, I think with the law degree, it does give me um, a little more, uh, I wouldn't say gravitas, but authority uh, in, in the decision making. Um, and then, you know, uh, I don't know what, what lies beyond that, but I, I, for the foreseeable future, I'll, I'll remain at NYPL. Uh, and, uh, but the privacy sector, as you, you well know, no, I mean, it's just booming. I, mean, it, I was at the IAPP annual um, convention in Washington a few months ago, and uh, Trevor Hughes, who's president, was showing a chart showing this um, very rapid rise in membership. I mean, I think it's doubled in the last few years. Uh, so the number of privacy prof professionals out there. So I think it's a, an interesting field to be in, and you know who knows, but where it'll take uh, where it'll take me. But I, I think f for uh, for libraries, there's still a lot of work to be done. And to go back to this pending privacy federal privacy law, it will um, oversee nonprofits as well. It, it will get the FTC authority over nonprofits. So we'll be in the mix and it will be interesting to see if that bill gets passed, how we um, 
how we have to change or what we need to do to, to become part of that larger uh, group now. Interesting. It's a nice transition to my next question that for folks thinking about privacy, maybe in the, in the nonprofit space, first of all, is there much, you know, uh, options for privacy there? Or do you see that maybe changing with the bill and uh, talk about talk about that if, if people want to work in the nonprofit space, but also, you know, want to have some some privacy? Sure. Um, so I think um, lots of opportunities. I mean, if, if you happen to live in Europe, I remember when GDPR passed in 2018, somebody said, well, this is lifetime employment for anybody in the privacy sphere because, you know, the DPOs, the data uh, protection officers who are mandated. Um, and, but I think in the U.S., um, there's just so many so many opportunities right now, but if, again, if the federal bill passes, there, there will be. Um, what I would encourage people to do though is get some kind of experience within the compliance framework or, or something along those lines. Uh, IAPP offers a number of certifications, the CIPP it's called, and I've got that, but as anyone who knows it would say or admit, it's, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. You know? Uh, it's, it's, it's just teaching the basics, but having some kind of on the ground experience, um, is really the main thing. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, it, I think having any kind of professional experience is, is the important part, but, um, and privacy is new enough that just to be able to say to a potential employer, well, you know, this didn't even exist 10, you know, really much, I don't want to say it didn't exist 10 years ago, but the, the number of companies who had full-time privacy people or officers was not there. So you can kind of create it for yourself. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the internet or was there World Wide Web came to, into being and companies were saying, well, we want somebody with five years of experience. And I thought, it didn't exist five years ago. You know, this is 1997 or whatever. So I think, uh, I think you can kind of play around with that one you know, somebody was interviewing with somebody and saying, well, you know, this is pretty new territory, but I do have this ancillary or similar experience that will meet the requirements of what you're looking for. And just like when I did apply to NYPL, you know, I never, I, the word privacy appeared nowhere on my resume. So, but I, I have, I have the chops to, to be able to, to make that argument. Interesting. So uh, my last question for you is for folks thinking about how they can become the next uh, Bill Martin, hmm. what kind of steps have you taken or opportunities, you know, that you've looked through, looked for uh, throughout your career that have, that have got you uh, to where you are today? Uh, that's a tough one because, I mean, needless to say, my career has been nonlinear <laughs> uh, at best. Um, I would say take advantage of uh, training, certainly that that might come your way. Um, and if you're if you're a lawyer now, um, practicing law institute PLI offers some great programs for privacy training. There's a two day seminar they offer every May, which is worth taking. Uh, and um, you know, it's it's just looking. For for the right opportunity at the right time. Uh, but I, I, you know, the, the general uh, 
advice I would give is be willing to to take the leap and and take advantage of, of something that um, you know you might be offered, even if it means having to move, assuming that you're you're not bound by certain obligations, and um, uh, and then talk to people in the field. I mean, a lot of people reach out to me and say, "Oh, I'm thinking of going in privacy. Can you can we talk?" And, and you know, so I'm on LinkedIn and happy to chat with people about um, what they what they might do and how they might you know uh, further their career in this field. Um, but like I said, there are lots of opportunities out there right now, and uh, people should you know no, no harm in in applying for something or or trying to to make your way in and use the connections you have. Right, that's the that's the age old thing. Um, I, I, both for myself and people I know so many times an op a job opportunity or whatever will come along because you know a person who knows a person who you know says oh you know um, I have just the right person for you so it's great advice <laughs> yeah and uh, with that thank you so much Bill for for sure. joining the podcast I'm very happy to have been here thank you Noah